I invite you to take your Bibles or one from the pew in front of you and turn with me, if you want to, to Romans chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, and we'll read it in the context of the paragraph, but our focus will be on verses 6 and 7 today. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his name's sake. And then these verses that we'll focus on today. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, call as saints grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, as we begin to unfold these words, would you minister grace and peace throughout this next 30 minutes or so? Because that's your purpose in this book. Grace to you and peace, you said. Grace to you and peace. Let grace come upon this church. Let peace come upon the troubled waters of every soul in this room. Through Christ I pray. Amen. Let's begin back a few weeks at verse 1 again. Paul begins his letter, the greatest letter that's ever been written, the most influential letter in the history of the world, bar none, no doubt about it. This is the most significant letter that's ever been written in the history of the world. And he begins it by identifying himself. But he does that in a way that calls all attention to what has been done to him by God rather than what he's done for God. Paul, servant or slave of Christ Jesus. In other words, I've been bought By the blood of Christ, I've been owned, I've been ruled, I belong to another, I'm a slave. Secondly, called to be an apostle. I got called. I was on the way to persecute Christ. He called me on the Damascus Road. That happened to me. I didn't do that for him. He did that. He did that for me. Third, Set apart for the gospel of God. That happened before he was born. Galatians 1.15. Set apart from my my mother's womb for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he didn't do that for God. God did that for him. So he introduces himself as one who has been acted upon. From which I get this lesson, which will tie into verse 6 in just a moment. Paul's grasp of grace... His understanding of grace in his gospel is so profoundly influenced by his own experience of grace. So when he comes to talk about grace, or to talk about himself, or to talk about the church, he can't help but talk about what God does first before he talks about what we do. And I don't mean to imply 
I don't mean to minimize that what you do is unimportant. Because we saw last week from verse 5 that the aim of the apostolic ministry is the obedience of faith. If we don't, out of faith, obey Christ, the apostolic ministry aborts in its intention. So I don't mean to minimize it. What I do mean is, it's not the main thing. What you do is not the main thing. It's not the first thing. And Paul, in talking about himself, or in talking about the church here, talks about the main thing first, namely, what God did. And he begins here in uh, verse 6 with two magnificent, loaded words to describe the church. Start reading verse 6. Among whom, and that refers back to the the Gentiles in verse 5. Let me stick in a parenthesis that I really should have put in last week with reference to that phrase, among all the Gentiles in verse 5. We, we divided verse 5 into three parts. Grace and apostleship was given. Why? What's the purpose? The purpose is to bring about the obedience that comes from faith. Among whom? And we didn't dwell on this. Among all the Gentiles, or all the nations, or all the peoples. And so I want to say loud and clear to God in prayer and to you by way of exhortation and benediction, O Lord God, may Bethlehem never cease to be a missions-driven church. May we never cease to be a missions-minded church. May we never lose the burden of the unreached peoples of the world. And there are many. And I say it because even though we're known for being a missions-minded church, you can lose that. You can wake up Two, three, four, five years down the line, having done so many good things as a church. And somebody all of a sudden says, you know, we're not talking about missions much anymore. You know, whatever happened to 2000 by 2000? It just kind of faded away. You know, we haven't commissioned anybody for a long time. That can happen. I don't want it to happen. I tremble that it could happen. And so I say here in this little parenthesis, when it says in verse 5 that the ministry of the apostle existed and the New Testament exists and this church exists to bring about the obedience of faith for all the peoples, we ought to be praying day in and day out, Lord of the harvest, Send forth laborers from Bethlehem. Do you pray that for Bethlehem? Send forth laborers. And so I right now say, Lord, do it. In this room, raise up two more families this year for the Manica. Do that, Lord. Would you say amen to that? 
There are people. We can't just say, oh well, we have half the team there now that was there. I guess nothing's going to happen. No. In the name of Jesus, no. Something's going to happen among our people. And it's going to be through others and those who are there, those who will return. It's going to be among those that a great movement among the Manica happens. We're going to look back and we're going to say there were moments, there were high moments when God came down and touched us with faith that that was going to happen. Close parenthesis. That should have been said last week. Among whom, verse 6, you also are the called of Jesus Christ. You're the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are loved of God in Rome. And then again, called as saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. Now we want to tackle these big words here, called and loved. But I want to put in here um, something that at this point in my preparation just landed on me with great force, namely the audacity of my talking like I'm talking and Paul's writing like he's writing in a world like we live in. And what I, what I, ha, what I felt so strongly at this point in my meditation for today was this room is a little room. It's a little room compared to Minneapolis. I fly in and out of the airport. And I can see the dome, and I can make out the Augustana complex, and I know we're there, and I look, and sometimes I catch this big, broad ceiling face, that, that roof. Sometimes I can see that. But it's so teeny. And Minneapolis is teeny. Two million people in the greater metro area, it's teeny. Compared to 280 million people in this country plus. And what's that? 280 million. 4% of the world's population. Teeny. Here we are. We think we're doing something big this morning, right? Indonesia's big. India is big. China is big. The Middle East is big. Is this big? Feels audacious to talk like this is big. And, and if this is audacious, to talk to you as though the God who made the universe, who raises up and puts down a Suharto or not, is here and has decided in his mercy to focus in a saving, keeping, loving, calling way upon you, Feels very audacious to say. But if that's audacious, what about Paul? Writing the book of Romans, 55 AD or so, little Jewish rabbi converted 20 years ago or so in an empire that's huge and doesn't know him from Adam, doesn't know that Christianity exists, Christianity is just getting started. Little enclave of believers in Rome. Who knows? 
much about them. And on the borders of all the empire, edges, barbarians as far as you can imagine as they called them. And here's this little, little teeny weeny Paul writing a little teeny weeny letter to a little teeny weeny enclave of Christians in Rome that God Almighty called them and loves them and is going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the whole universe exists so that the word of God might bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the name of God among all the nations. I tell you, that's audacious. And I feel that, which means that I, I cry out, Paul, did you feel that? Do you share with me? I've got, the people are thinking about Indonesia this morning. I think, I think Paul inserted verses two, three, and four of this chapter to alert his little teeny weeny readership concerning the magnitude of what he believes. He was born the Messiah, the seed of David, and he's going to fulfill every promise that for 2,000 years plus has been made in this world by God. He was crucified and he was raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit and declared Son of God, not just any old Son of God, but Son of God in power. And that means all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him so that you can go and make disciples from every nation, including India and China and Indonesia. And that's history. Suharto, blip on the screen, forgotten. The church of Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever and ever. That's history. And so, if you don't have a mindset this morning for these big heavenly realities of the Messiah and of the risen Son of God in triumph and power, I don't know how in the world you can sit there and feel anything but the absolute ridiculous, foolish audacity of this kind of talk that we're talking here. So my prayer is, that you will be able to set your mind on Christ. Don't look at the situation. Don't measure significance by size, folks. The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous. In our eyes. Don't spit on a rejected stone outside Jerusalem. Now let's go to verse 6. We're going to talk about two words, but I said in the first service, I'll say it again, that when I was preparing, I simply couldn't bring myself to tackle both words in one sermon because they are so huge. One word is called and the other word is 
loved. And I know the sermon topic title says, Called of Jesus Christ, Loved of God. Well, now there's a part one and a part two. So this week, it's called. And next week, it's loved. In spite of the fact that because I told him we were going to do both, we built a service around love and called. So we'll see how Chuck does for next week. (laughs) And it'll be good, just like it was so good, Chuck, for me this morning. Thank you. I don't think... Let's get in front of us this phrase, verse 6, called. You see, you Christians, you are the called of Christ Jesus. And then in verse 7, called as saints. We should wonder at this. We should be overwhelmed by this act of God to do this to us. But it's hard for Americans, democratically driven egalitarian, individualistic, self-reliant Americans to be awed at this word. And until we can shed our democratic ideals in relation to God, we will never be awed by these words. Democracy proceeds upon the assumption that we all have equal rights. Human rights around the world is the basis of democracy as it is promulgated in the world. We are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Now, If you take that love affair with democracy into your relationship with God, you will destroy Christianity. If you try to apply the horizontal ideal of democracy, and I admit it's probably the best form of government that fallen people can come up with in this world. I like it. If you take that and verticalize it into God's government of humans, you will hate Christianity. And most Americans do hate Christianity as soon as they come to know what it is. We can transform Christianity into all kinds of substitutes that win a hearing from self-reliant, independent, egalitarian, rights-driven people, and they'll buy it. It isn't Christianity. We have the notion that now God must treat everybody according to their intelligence or effort or courage or at least the same. God's got to be at least egalitarian if he's not a capitalist. But what if the human heart, what if the human heart is corrupt and hard 
and rebellious and blind and virtually dead spiritually, as the Bible says it is in Ephesians 4.18 and Ephesians 2.5. What if that's the case? Then the only thing that self-reliance can produce is more death. More death. The aroma from death to death when it comes into contact with that kind of heart. The only thing that can save us, if that's the way we are, is a divine, supernatural, powerful, awakening call from God, from heaven, into our hearts, so that we rise from that dead. If we say in allegiance to our democratic ideal, that God must call everyone the same way he calls anyone to be a just God, we do not know our wickedness or our corruption yet the way we ought to know it. If God calls anyone, it is absolutely free, grace, and undeserved. He's not obliged to call everyone because he calls anyone, because he doesn't call anyone because of their desert. If he called you because of your desert, this person over here would have a right to say, well, if he deserves it, I deserve it. Then justice would require equality. If you have no deserts, and you get called, this person has nothing they can say. I wonder if you believe this. In the first service, I got the attention of the children at this point, And I said, children, take this sentence home and ask it at the dinner table to find out what your parents believe. So I, I'll say it again to you here, even though you can ask each other. I assert that human beings as they presently exist have absolutely no rights with God. None. Zero. We have no rights over against God. We have no right to claim anything from God. Nothing. Therefore, all condemnation from God is just and all salvation from God is gracious. And nobody can raise any complaint whatsoever. That's how bad we are. If you don't get that, you don't get sin yet. The first thing in the gospel, my father, who's an evangelist, who's preached the word of God for 50 plus years, has seen 10,000 thousands of souls come to Christ and is a far more effective evangelist than I am, told me one time, Johnny, the hard thing is not getting people saved. The hard thing is getting people lost. And if that was true when he said that to me about 20 years ago, I tell you, in America today, that's a hundred times more true. People do not believe they are under the wrath of God. People do not believe there is a holy, righteous God in heaven 
whose judgment is justly upon them. Of course people believe life is rotten. Of course people believe they have psychological problems. Of course people believe the family's falling apart. Of course people believe the world's about to explode with India and China rattling their armaments. Of course people believe the kids are a mess and are going into drugs. Of course people believe the inner city is a mess. But almost nobody believes it's the wrath of God. So we can't understand the gospel. We've got rights with God. And until we feel the overwhelming sense of how corrupt and rebellious and sinful and wicked the human heart is. Which is why the first three chapters of Romans was written, by the way. We will not appreciate the words called of Christ Jesus. We will distort this phrase until it is no longer recognizable in the eyes of the Apostle Paul. I've assumed three things which I want to now defend. One, God does the calling. Two, not everybody is called Only some are called. And three, the call is effective. It creates what it commands. Number one, Paul does the calling. When you read this phrase in verse six, you are the called of Jesus Christ. I believe that means you were called by God to belong to Jesus Christ. The NIV already solves the problem for you with its paraphrase, and it's a right one, I believe. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God who has called you, notice who's the caller, God who has called you into the fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. And we could look in numerous other texts where God is the caller and he calls into the kingdom. He calls into light. He calls into fellowship with the Son of God. And he calls for glory and he calls for eternal joy. God did that. If you are called this morning, God did that. And if you are called this morning, you are now enjoying fellowship with Jesus Christ. He's your friend, your lover your husband, your savior, your Lord, the one who said, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, and will bring you and keep you in this called condition forever. Here's the second thing I assumed and now want to try to defend. Namely, that the call in this verse is a call that is issued by God, not to everyone, but to some. Turn with me to chapter 8, if you'd like to see the evidence for this. We'll look at two texts for evidence. Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. For whom now? For whom does all things work together for good? All things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. 
So not all are called. To those who love God, that's the subjective experience of what we have in our heart. And then the objective thing that's been done to us is, and who are called according to his purpose, to those people, everything works together for good. To the non-called, everything doesn't work together for good. Some are called and some are not. Look at verse 30. These whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Not everybody is justified, but all the called are justified. Therefore, not all are called. This is a unique Particular, special act of favor and grace directed towards totally undeserving, godless, unbelieving people. Like Paul on the Damascus Road heading towards the persecution. And let me tell you, I had a man come up here at the end of last service, standing right there. He took my hand and he said... John, just want to encourage you, this is not theoretical. Thirty years ago, I came home. My eyes were glazed with drugs. I was on a hell-bent trajectory in every direction but heaven. And I fell on my bed. And God brought Ephesians 2.8 to my mind out of nowhere from somewhere back in my childhood and saved me. And I was changed. Like that, he said. God did that. I wasn't asking. I wasn't seeking. God did that. And I thank him. No, it isn't theory. It isn't theory. So the question comes, well, what is this call? Aren't we supposed to preach the gospel to everybody? You saying that on Tuesday night when we gather here to do evangelism, we're supposed to kind of do some hocus pocus and decide which house to go to, where the called are, or something like that? The answer to that question is a resounding no. Yes, we are supposed to preach the gospel to everybody, and no, we are not to play God and pick out which house to go to and which house not to in some sense of whether there's a called person there. No way. We do exactly what Jesus did. He took the seed of the word and it says they, he scattered it on every soil. You scatter the word on every soil in Minneapolis, every soil at work, every soil in your extended family over and over and over till the eyes cannot weep anymore over your father, over your son. Or your sister. You keep on doing it. And you keep on praying. 
And this message this morning is to put reason in your prayer that God can do it. No, we do not play God. That's his business. We do the universal preaching with Billy Graham and with tracts and with books and every other way. That's the meaning of evangelism. That's the meaning of missions. But that is not the call of Romans 1.6. The universal call of the gospel that goes out over the radio every day, that's going out from my mouth right now, is not the call of Romans 1.6. That call accomplishes what it commands. So let's look at the last point. The third thing I assume that I need to now defend is not just that the call goes to some and not all, but that it is effective. It produces what it calls for. When the gospel goes out, when it is preached as a universal offer, the meaning is Christ is here. Christ is presented. Christ is offered. Christ is beautiful. The death of Christ is sufficient for every sin that has ever been committed. Be awakened. Be drawn. Be attracted. See. Embrace. Trust. Call upon. Be saved. That's the gospel. And everyone who wills, whosoever will, may come and be saved. And everybody knows who hasn't got their head in the sand, they don't all come. Why did you come? Smart? Courage? Why did you come? What answer would you give to God why you came? Let's go to 1 Corinthians one twenty three for the answer why you came. And I go here just to support what we're seeing in Romans one six and Romans eight. 28 and 30, so that you can see it's scattered about through his epistles elsewhere. And perhaps the Lord might use a different divine inspired word to awaken some of you this morning. 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. So you see what Paul's saying? He's saying, I walk into Corinth, this city, this is a wicked city. I walk into Corinth and I lift up my voice and I say, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was crucified for sinners. Everybody is a sinner. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life. The blood of Jesus Christ can cover all your sins. It is sufficient for everything you've ever done or ever will done. Behold the beauty of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Come, believe, put your trust in Him, and you will have everlasting life. And everyone who is called comes. Let's read it. 
We preach Christ crucified to the Jews, most of them. He's a stumbling block, and they stumble over that message of a crucified Messiah. To the Gentiles, the ones who know a little philosophy and are secular, it's just foolishness. It's just foolishness what's going on at this church this morning and in the gospel. But, verse 24, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks and every other ethnic group where the gospel is preached, to those who are called, this Christ no longer appears like a stumbling block. And this Christ no longer appears like foolishness. This Christ is in their hearts now the very power and the wisdom of God. And they believe. That's why you came. God called you. And owing to no Virtue in you whatsoever. You saw him as believable, beautiful, glorious, trustworthy. And you could not, not come. And that's why it's called irresistible. Sometimes people say, no, you believe in irresistible grace. And they chalk it up as an ugly thing that has people kicking and screaming and saying, No, 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 I hate Jesus, I hate Jesus, I hate Jesus. It's not the way it happens. Turn with me. I'll show you how it happens and we'll close with this. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want you to know where you came from, Christian. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, I want you to know what you are utterly dependent upon so that you will fall upon it. You will rest in it. and You will not run away from it this morning. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Just stop right there. Two things are conspiring to ruin your life if you're not a believer. Your own unbelief and rebellion and the devil are conspiring to blind you. Unbelief is a kind of blindness and the devil jumps on it and makes it as dark as he can. So the devil and your own corrupt heart of unbelief is blinding you if you're not a believer. So what hope is there? Because if you don't see Christ as attractive, if you don't see him as trustworthy, if you don't see him as beautiful, you're not going to come. You're going to hate the light. Jesus said, they don't come to the light because they love the darkness and they hate the light. The only hope is what? Let's keep reading. Two things have to happen. One is verse 5 and one is verse 6. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So here's what has to happen first. Somebody's got to preach the gospel and be a loving servant model of Jesus in your life. You gotta hear the gospel. You gotta hear Jesus announced 
Evangelism and world evangelization and missions are absolutely indispensable if anyone is to be saved. But that will not save anybody if verse 6 doesn't happen. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness... You know what he's referring to there? The God who at the creation of the world said, let there be light. And the very command brought forth the light. Let light shine out of darkness. Made his light shine in our hearts to give us. Now he refers to what could not be seen back in verse 4. To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You got saved, Christian, because for some reason in your heart you saw the glory of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, the light of the gospel. And darkness fled away. And what up till that moment in your life seemed unattractive, seemed boring, seemed foolish, seemed like a stumbling block, suddenly, how could I have ever treated it with disdain? This is the most precious, the most beautiful, the most self-authenticating, the most powerful, wonderful message in all the world. That happened to you, and it wasn't your virtue that made that happen. God did that. God said once upon a time in your life, let there be light in John Piper's heart. And all the rebellion and all the wickedness and all the resistance collapsed. And you freely, mark that word, you freely and irresistibly were ravished by the beauty of Christ and believed. That's what happened. You couldn't articulate it. Of course you couldn't articulate it. Babies can't explain how they got born. But when they grow up, they can read obstetrical manuals called Romans. And they can know, and instead of thanking themselves that they crawled out of the womb, they thank God. God is so good to us, and we are so undeserving. Let's pray that God would come now. Let's close in prayer. Father, my prayer is that in this room right now, two things would happen. I'm sure you're doing more, but these two are on my heart. One is that your called of Jesus Christ would know where they came from so that they would be on their faces this afternoon saying thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you for awakening me that I could see you and believe in you and that you took out my heart of stone that you took away my blindness, that you took away my deafness, that you took away my deadness and made me alive to the beauty that I might believe. Thank you. 
And then for those in this room who are not yet believing, I plead with you, Father, come and take away the darkness. Take away the devil's influences. We just renounce the devil right now in all his ways and all his works in the name of Almighty Jesus. We renounce his darkening effects upon minds in this room and ask you to deliver and save. Let's all stand. And we together as a congregation pray now that every good thing that was begun in this service would now be completed by the same grace with which it was done. Lord, dismiss us now with your ongoing mercy and grace. I just say these words, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the people said, Amen.